NAMIC members can now receive a 15% discount on new customer subscriptions to NASDAQ Board Portal. NASDAQ Board Vantage is a powerful corporate communication platform and online solution that helps companies run their board meetings, organize, share materials with directors, and document board activities in a secure online environment. More than half of Fortune 100 companies trust NASDAQ Board Vantage, a NAMIC national market member, to provide streamlined corporate governance services. To learn what the online portal will allow your company to do, visit www.namic.org slash products slash boardvantage. Hello, everyone, and welcome to an all-new episode of Insurance Uncovered. This podcast is produced by the National Association of Mutual Insurance Companies and is your source for insurance news and perspective from thought leaders in the property casualty insurance industry. I'm your host, Kathy Imus, and today we're uncovering a stand against regulatory overreach. We'll share how the association's judicial advocacy efforts help protect members on issues where law and policy intersect. And it's hurricane preparedness week, how NOAA is encouraging property owners to prepare for the worst. But first, in Washington, bipartisan legislation was reintroduced, allowing insurers and other financial services to work with legal cannabis-based businesses without fear of running afoul of federal laws. The Secure and Fair Enforcement, or SAFE, Banking Act would establish a safe haven from criminal or regulatory liability for financial services companies, allowing them to offer goods and service to cannabis-based businesses in those states where they are legal to operate. The legislation was introduced in the prior Congress and passed the House several times as part of broader legislative packages and also as a standalone measure, but it failed to win passage in the Senate. A similar bill was introduced in the House, the Clarifying Law Around Insurance of Marijuana, or CLAIM Act, also protects the rights of insurers and other financial services companies to choose not to offer services to cannabis-based businesses. In other news in the nation's capital, the House Financial Services and the Senate Banking Committee held separate hearings on the National Flood Insurance Program. During the House hearing, all committee members and the witness, FEMA Representative David Morstad, agreed on the need for a long-term reauthorization of the NFIP with reforms to better ensure the program's financial soundness and its services to policyholders. There was also significant debate regarding FEMA's new pricing methodology tool known as Risk Rating 2.0, with members from coastal areas of the country expressing concerns that their constituents' premiums were increasing as a result. On the other hand, members from non-coastal areas largely agreed Risk Rating 2.0 is the best step forward in accurately measuring risk on an individualized level. At the Senate hearing, Roy Wright, who is president and CEO of the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety, testified that the science on flood mitigation is more straightforward than the other perils. Uh, You build higher and stronger, you elevate. You get out of the way of the water, you relocate. Or you redirect the water, drainage and other flood infrastructure projects. While the engineering piece of this is clear, the path to bring these solutions to flood-prone homes and communities is far less clear. Mitigating before an event is always the goal, yet too many homes file repeat flood claims. So 
I commend FEMA for its Swift Current Initiative that incorporates repetitive loss home acquisitions into the disaster recovery timeframe. Yet, there is still room to make Swift Current meet the mark as being swift. Make it happen in real time so that the point of insurance claim is the point of grant offer for these repetitive losses. That said, property level mitigation will never be an efficient means to tackle this problem. Parenthetically, I'll say property level mitigation is the right answer for wildfire or for um, wind risk. A single flood elevation or relocation project changes the experience for a single family, yet it does not bend down the overall risk curve. Neighborhood scale endeavors are best. Elevate a full block of homes and the entire neighborhood returns after the water recedes. Buy out a couple blocks of a subdivision to leave room for the water and the first responders don't need to approach the area during the flood. The water can flow. Neighborhood scale and infrastructure flood mitigation investments do more. You consider what New Orleans uh, during and after Hurricane Ida. While too many homeowners experienced devastating and preventable losses from Ida's wind, the flood systems worked and homes in New Orleans were spared flood damage. Wright says using mitigation grants to reduce risk to existing structures and communities is reactive, but that the solution should be proactive. He says after 25 small reauthorizations over seven years, a long-term program would provide customers with greater stability. Though hard to believe, we're less than one month from the start of the 2023 hurricane season. So now is the time to get prepared for when the worst happens. National Hurricane Preparedness Week is going on right now with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration campaign underway targeting property owners to help them better understand their risks. NOAA says home and business owners should know how to interpret forecasts and alerts and know what to do before, during, and after a storm. For those living in hurricane-prone areas, it's never too late to start preparing. For more information, you can go to NOAA.gov. Well, insurers, as a general rule, prefer to avoid litigation, not encourage it. But certain cases do require NAMIC to step into the void. And when it's been necessary to pursue litigation, the association has done so for the benefit of its members. NAMIC will soon launch a quarterly judicial advocacy update to keep members up to speed on the status of first-party litigation, to provide updates on amicus activity, and examine issues where law and policy intersect. On today's Unscripted, NAMIC CEO Neil Aldrich talks with the association's general counsel, Andrew Kirkner, about some of the challenges currently facing insurers on the judicial advocacy front. Joining me today on our podcast is actually a repeat guest. Uh, it's NAMIC's own Andrew Kirkner. Uh, the listeners have probably heard from Andrew before, although maybe in a different capacity. About a year ago, uh, Andrew was promoted here at NAMIC into a new position. He's now our general counsel for the association. Heads up the all internal and external legal work uh, for the organization. And that includes a topic that we're going to dive into a little bit here today on the podcast. That's uh, the world of judicial advocacy. So there's a lot going on in that world. That's not only the work we do in in terms of uh, first party litigation, that's fairly rare, but also our amicus work uh, and other avenues in which we try to represent member interests in the courts. So uh, thanks for joining us today, Andrew. 
Yeah, happy to be with you, Neil. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about judicial advocacy. You know, what's what's driving the need for it? Is this new? Is it different? What? How do you how do you describe it? Yeah, well, so I think you you put it uh, pretty well in the intro, Neil. We, we've essentially got three prongs to our judicial advocacy efforts. Uh, the first is those sort of first party cases where we need to step in uh, and push back against either regulatory or legislative overreach. Um, I think you have said it best in the past. We try really hard not to sue insurance commissioners, uh, mostly because there are commissioners. But there are times where we we sort of have to step up to the plate. And we've really seen a rash of that recently, um, whether it's uh, insurance commissioners, um, you know, sort of uh, legislating from the, the commissioner's office, so to speak, uh, without appropriate legislative grants of authority, um, prohibiting insurer practices, things like that. Um, I think it's a fair assessment to say that it's a lot easier uh, or a lot better from a, a public facing perspective for the trade association to step up in those cases uh, and sue um, regulators than it is for individual companies. Uh, at the end of the day, we're cognizant that, that companies are still regulated by uh, commissioners. Uh, and while we would certainly um, and aim to uh, maintain good working relationships with those commissioners, uh, at times we do have to push back. So the first sort of reason for our uptick in judicial advocacy is um, what I'd describe as regulatory overreach. I think the regulatory overreach, if we play devil's advocate for a second, is is probably, um, you know, it comes from a couple different things. And one of those is the polarization in legislative state houses, right? It's hard to accomplish uh, anything in a legislative state house, um, which can at times work to our favor. But I think what commissioners are finding is an inability to pass pass some of of the more um, uh, activist uh, legislation, and so uh, they're oftentimes turning to doing it themselves, for lack of a better description. So we're having to to step up there. The, the last sort of motivation I'd say um, is turnover, um, and that's turnover at the state houses, which I think feeds into some of that polarization, but also turnover at state insurance departments. I think we've, we found um, that uh, many regulators have, have a difficulty um, in um, acquiring new staff or ma maintaining existing staff. And while there are a number of very professional uh, state insurance departments across the country, uh, sometimes turnover internally um, makes them make bad decisions for lack of, of better uh, description. So those are, are sort of the motivations here. Sure. So let's talk a little bit about some of the cases we've been involved in um, and some of the successes we've had. So Washington State is one people may know about, uh, may not know about what's going on in Louisiana. Uh, you're right about my, my general attitude on this is these ought to be rare. I hope we don't get in the, ha in the, in the habit where we feel like we have no other choice but to bring suit against insurance departments uh, to challenge their rules or regulation it is my one of my least favorite things for us to do uh, we have to you know do what we have to do to be successful here but we still have to deal with them after the fact so let's talk about washington state and some some of the other places where we've had some re-success here sure so you, you just hit the nail on the head. We were really left with no other choice uh, in, in both of the cases that I'll outline here and, and maybe a third one I'll touch on. In Washington State, uh, the insurance commissioner uh, put out what started as an emergency rule, but then morphed a little bit into effectively uh, a ban on the use of credit-based insurance scoring uh, in rating and underwriting. Um, 
you know, it's it's NAMIC's charge to protect underwriting freedom, right? Uh, and when we kind of boil it down to its simplest form, uh, company use of credit-based insurance scoring, which is both different than a traditional credit score and also very prevalent in the industry, uh, somewhere uh, north of 90% of companies use credit-based insurance scoring, um, you know, we really had to, to step in there. Uh, so NAMIC uh, initiated suit uh, in Washington State against uh, the insurance commissioner, we were ultimately, without without getting too bogged down into sort of the procedural morass of that case, um, we were ultimately successful uh, in um, defeating that uh, that prohibition, uh, the rule, as it were. So we're, we were really happy with that outcome. I think, um, you know, if there are a couple takeaways there, it is, one, someone did need to push back. We were to the point where, um, you know, we had an insurance commissioner essentially uh, prohibiting uh, companies from using an individual rating factor that is absolutely actuarial sound and predictive of risk. Um, honestly, probably what carried the day out there was the impact on seniors uh, and the, you know, uh, uh, the increase in rates that that group saw. So it was not only sort of convincing from an argumentative standpoint, but it was also an illustration of how a protected class can be impacted by a well-intentioned even uh, rule and prohibition there. Well, and so, it was otherwise legal too in Washington state that the legislature had acted to allow the use of the tool. That's exactly right. Um, the commissioner out there, uh, I won't say uh, made it easy for us because I, I certainly don't think that was the intent. Uh, but the the legislature did and in, in the past specifically prescribe uh, the uses of credit based insurance scoring. It's very clearly legal in Washington state. It was very clearly legal when the commissioner uh, promulgated the rule. So we were ultimately successful there, which was a, a great outcome for, for the membership. Um, I'll just mention briefly, we had essentially the same case in the state of Nevada. Um, I say essentially the same because there are some state law uh, differences and intricacies on which the two cases turn. Um, we were uh, at the initial stage, at least not successful in Nevada. The Supreme Court has put out a decision uh, upholding the division's uh, promulgation of a similar rule there. I would draw just two distinctions. One is the rule in Nevada is uh, temporary in nature. We have a date certain that it will end, which is in May of 2024, um, and, and companies will be able to uh, reintegrate um, the uh, use of what they described as negative credit information. Uh, we're also, and the second distinction would be, we're all, that's not a final decision. Uh, we're still in the appeals process, certainly still uh, working with the division to try to reach some non-judicial outcome there. But I did, I do want to mention that because they're essentially the same cases uh, with different outcomes. And it kind of illustrates why we're doing this, right? Um, if we're getting two different decisions from two states that aren't that far apart, um, you can only imagine the compliance uh, and difficulties um, uh, faced by our member companies. And so certainly we we are aiming to sort of standardize that where we can uh, and, and push back against that regulatory overreach where it happens. You mentioned Louisiana, too. I'll just briefly mention um, there the case in Louisiana stems uh, from in what we would describe as a regulatory overreach on fire rating classifications. Um, and so without digging too far into the substantive details here, I wanted to highlight this case uh, because it's a perfect example of a regulator stepping in, sort of over-interpreting a legislative grant of authority, and NAMIC stepping in once again in the shoes of its membership. That case in particular probably would have some um, 
pretty tough impacts on an individual on individual insurers. And so NAMIC has initiated suit there. The real success there is that we've established standing. Uh, so we will be able to be in the court to make our case uh, that the commissioner has overinterpreted the fire uh, rating classification map. Uh, and we hope to be ultimately be successful in the litigation. Great. Well, then, like I said, these things are good outcomes. Um, maybe not our most preferred strategy, but uh, sometimes we just don't have any other choice where we have to pursue these remedies uh, for the membership. So here, there's another new case uh, that many members may not know about. Uh, we just recently took some action filing an amicus brief in the United States Supreme Court, encouraging the court to hear a case uh, that actually comes out of Washington State, too. Uh, different case altogether. So why don't you describe that action for us? Sure. So the case uh, in question is is Thompson versus Henderson. It does come from the Washington State Supreme Court. And, um, you know, it'll really set you on your heels if you read the underlying opinion or NAMIC's amicus brief. Um, and, and certainly it's it's uh, it's a fascinating story. I'll, I'll I'll kind of leave it there and get into the details. Uh, this is a classic fender bender case uh, out of Washington State. Um, you know, it is an accident so minor in nature that the police uh, did not come to the scene. Um, when the case went to trial, there was a $3.5 million damages uh, demand uh, under the theory that the plaintiff was an eggshell plaintiff uh, and enjoyed a substantial reduction in quality of life. Uh, ultimately, after a, a full jury trial on the merits, uh, the jury awarded just over $9,000 in damages. So it's a pretty striking contrast between a $3.5 million damages award and a nine, uh, just over $9,000 uh, award. Um, so at the conclusion of the trial, the plaintiff in that case alleged that there was racial bias uh, in, in the action. And, and she pointed to a couple of uh, particular um, comments or theories that defense counsel made in this case. And I'll say before digging into this, and, and generally this is not something we'd mention, that the plaintiff in this case uh, is African-American. The plaintiff's counsel in this case is African-American. The defendant in this case uh, is Caucasian and the defense counsel is Caucasian. Um, that sort of sets the stage uh, for what the allegations were. The plaintiff alleged that uh, the defense use of uh, a lottery ticket theory, in other words, that the plaintiff was looking to this case to get rich, um, was uh, racially charged, that the, the defendant's use of words like combative or alleging that the testimony was coached uh, were all evidence of racial bias. The trial court looked at these allegations, did not find evidence of racial bias, and the plaintiff uh, in that case appealed. On appeal, the Washington State Supreme Court took the extraordinary step of overturning the jury verdict, removing the trial court judge from the case, and sending the case back to the trial court for another look. The Supreme Court's rationale was that there was, in fact, clear evidence of racial bias. Now, that in and of itself is not um, exceptional that they would find something like that. But what they pointed to is really concerning, I think, for all litigants, but in, particularly for insurance companies. Um, the first thing that they pointed to as evidence for racial bias was, was the race of the counsel involved in the, in the uh, case. Uh, the fact that the plaintiff's counsel was African-American and that defense counsel was Caucasian. Uh, that is incredibly troubling for any number of reasons, but 
primary of which the Supreme Court has essentially intimated to uh, all uh, uh, litigants that they should be concerned about race of counsel. Uh, they, they should factor it in when they select counsel. Now, that may be overstepping what they said slightly, but what what that's essentially the inference there. That's not only wrong, uh, you know, from a moral perspective, but it's illegal. Uh, you know, companies obviously cannot consider race uh, when selecting their counsel, and so it's certainly concerning. The the last I'll 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 wrap it up by uh, providing the new standard uh, that the Washington State Supreme Court has given to litigants, um, and that is uh, they've essentially told um, litigants that where there's an allegation of racial bias, um, the the arbiters are to look um, to an objective observer who is aware that implicit institutional and unconscious biases. Uh, have influenced jury verdicts in Washington state and could view race as a factor in the verdict. In other words, the Supreme Court has set up a standard where in order to review this, you have to know that racism exists, that racial bias has impacted um, verdicts. And while I don't think it's appropriate for NAMIC to take a position on that particular question, they've essentially set up a system uh, where we'll see a number of uh, cases be overturned on race neutral comments like the ones we saw in this case. There was certainly no inference of race. There was no suggestion of race. There was no mention of race. Uh, but yet we have a, a, a jury award overturned, um, you know, after a full evidentiary trial uh, on this case. So leaving that in the past and moving to our brief, we have uh, joined the United States Chamber of Commerce. Um, and we wrote our own brief, but we've joined them uh, in submitting to the United States Supreme Court an amicus brief, asking the court to take this uh, case up. It's an important case uh, and asking them to overturn it. Um, if you look for no other reason uh, than again, the, the race neutral comments that were made uh, during the case, uh, and the the inference that insurers would have to consider or factor in the race of counsel uh, in selecting for their defendants. So um, that's where it sits right now. We should uh, know more on that here in the next month or two. Uh, but it's it's a it's not something NAMIC does very frequently. I think we've done two briefs maybe in the last 20 years to the United States Supreme Court. And so certainly something an important case that that we're uh, we're involved in. Yeah, it's, uh, again, as you mentioned, not perhaps uh, one that would be on the top of people's minds, but it is a certainly troubling set of circumstances, and and it'll be very interesting to see if the court takes it up. But another good example, though, of the kind of advocacy, why, we, why we're here and the kind of work that we do on behalf of the membership. Um, so how can we, you know, a couple things, you know, what, what do we expect going forward? And how can members kind of help us engage on the judicial advocacy front? Sure. So um, I, I guess zooming out for a second, I, I would want the membership to know that NAMIC has authored or co-authored more than 100 amicus briefs in the last two years. Um, we are active uh, in the courts already, but I think we have to do more. I think we're called to do more uh, by any for any number of reasons, uh, including feedback from the membership. Um, so I think what members can expect is an uptick in the amount of amicus activity. Um, we'll see probably a downtick in the amount of COVID-19 related amicus activity, uh, but I think we'll see more uh, work.
work in non-COVID-19 spaces. So pointing to a couple of examples here, I think we should continue. We will continue to see questions of policy interpretation, which is sort of the bread and butter um, policy language interpretation. I should say that's sort of the bread and butter uh, for trade associations and insurance trade associations in particular. Will be active there. We will continue to. Um, uh, participate in COVID-19 coverage questions. We got just last week uh, notification that the Oregon Supreme Court will take up uh, the question of physical loss uh, in um, business interruption policies. Um, obviously, that's a question that's been resolved um, in favor. I won't say in, in insurer's favor, though that's been the outcome, but in favor of the plain language of insurance policies, which is really what we're advocating for. I will confess that I have concerns about about how that case will play out in Oregon. So I think we would certainly be active there. We would uh, advise the court. We'd be a friend of the court, which is what an amicus brief is, uh, to try encourage them to take the same interpretation that the vast majority of circuits and courts that have considered that question have taken. The last thing I think looking down the road, we'll start to see are questions of bias uh, in underwriting and rating. And I think those questions are right now sitting at the policymaker level. Uh, so regulators are turning these questions over. Um, uh, lawmakers are turning these questions over. But the courts are getting ready to start considering these questions. Um, when I say bias in, in underwriting and rating, I mean uh, the use of big data, artificial intelligence. Those are questions that are coming to a court near you. And so it's a it's a place where NAMIC will want to be active and be prepared um, to, to sort of uh, step in and ask the court, uh, again, uh, to, to rule, um, not necessarily in favor of our members, though we certainly would like that outcome, but in favor of the plain language of our policies and established uh, state and federal law. You ask a second question in there, which was how how can members help? Well, I I first like to touch on what we're doing to better update members in this sure. space, and I think um, starting this quarter we'll be putting out a uh, quarterly publication that sort of gives an overview of what we're doing in the judicial advocacy space. So we'll talk about the first party litigation, we'll talk about the amicus efforts, and then we'll talk about sort of a third section, which is the intersection of law and policy. Uh, so these are in instances where things like um, the state Supreme Courts take up rules changes, right? And this is boring stuff that you would turn the page on in the newspaper. I'll be the first to first to confess, but it's important stuff. And our members are in courts across the country every day. The rules we play by matter, uh, and it's a space where NAMIC can certainly engage. The second item I'd mention, uh, NAMIC has uh, uh, sent out a judicial advocacy um, contribution invitation to member companies uh, so that we can increase our resources in this space uh, so we can do more, be more active. Uh, and so we'd certainly uh, love support there and, and folks can contact me with any questions. Uh, and then the third item I point to uh, is NAMIC's uh, General Counsel Connect, um, which is uh, one of our Connect programs. Uh, we invite member company general counsels from across the country to Chicago for a couple days uh, in late August. Um, it's August 28th and 29th. We, you know, talk about emerging issues and trends, but really more than that, it's an opportunity uh, for member companies, uh, general counsels to talk to each other uh, and to, to have uh, some of the networking that makes uh, NAMIC's Connect events uh, so valuable. So we'd, we'd certainly invite participation there. Yeah, that's great reminder it's a great event the, those of you that have not been to it that are general counsels in that role for members i would highly recommend it 
and judicial advocacy, as you can get gather, the listeners can kind of tell, is, is you know a growing area of interest of ours, growing area of concern in the membership, unfortunately, and another front in which we will advocate on behalf of members, like we do in state houses or in Washington D.C. or at, at the NEIC or wherever else. And now, uh, certainly more than ever, it appears to be the same in courtrooms across the country. So, Andrew, thanks for joining us. Thanks for all your work here. Uh, it's a great set of uh, issues and, and, and good work here for the membership. And that's all for this week's episode of Insurance Uncovered. We'll be back again on May 17th with more insurance news and perspective. Until then, I'm Kathy Imus. Have a terrific day.